hello. Hey. Welcome back to Better Friendships. It's our podcast about creating, growing, and maintaining friendships that sustain, fulfill, and enrich our lives. We're your hosts, Julie and Katie. And today we're going to be talking about the biological and evolutionary need for friendship. We're going to explore our social brains, the hows and whys of social bonds and cooperation, and we're going to talk about hormones and how they play a role in our friendships. I love it. I've been doing so much research. I'm so ready. Yes, me too. And I would like to kick this off with what is probably my favorite piece of research that I came across. So did you know that in Switzerland, it is illegal to own only one guinea pig? I heard that. Evidently, they get lonely, which makes me feel really bad because I'm pretty sure I had a guinea pig growing up and I only had one. Hmm. Or maybe it was a hamster. I had a rodent of some kind. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, did I tell you about my friend who got a pet bird? No. So she gets this pet bird, right? And she's wanted this kind of bird her whole life. It's this specific breed of bird, and she's just been waiting her whole life to get it. So she gets it. She brings it home. And everything goes well for about a week. And then this bird gets really attached to her, like so attached that it won't leave her shoulder. So she goes back to the woman she got the bird from, and she says, I don't know what to do. And the woman's like, well, maybe another bird will help. So essentially, she got it another bird to attach to. And then she had two birds. Like she, she got a pet for her pet. I've heard about that before, actually. Um, they get racehorses. They get pet goats. Often. Really? Really? Yes. And there's a term for it. They're called comfort goats, which I just love. <laughs> I love that. I, I would, I hope someday I can have a comfort goat. But again, I, probably not in Las Vegas. <laughs> I have been, I live on a pretty big plot of land. I've been bothering my husband for the four years that we've owned this house to get me a couple of goats. Ironically, or I mean, it's not really ironic, but I have a friend who just got some goats. She borrowed her mom's minivan and loaded it up with some goats. Now she's homesteading and it's awesome, man. She's got goats. It's super cool. All I'm saying is a minivan full of goats. That's like my dream. <laughs> Live in the dream, imagine, man. Can you imagine driving by that on the highway? Like, what? I mean, I live in the country. I've I've driven by much stranger yeah. things on the highway. <laughs> I mean, I live in Las Vegas. I drive by strange things on the highway too. There's just not minivans full of kids. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible, and I won't ever do it again. Okay, um, all right. I will trust you. Okay, so horses have goat friends. Yes. So, um. In the wild, horses are kind of, they're herd animals. They're not kind of, they are herd animals. Uh, they like to be in groups. They, they like to have their friends. They get very lonely. But unlike goats in minivans, horses are big. And they're difficult and expensive to transport from one place to another. So having to also bring your horse's best friend with it can be a little bit cumbersome and financially not always in the cards. So instead they get them these goats to be their friends so they can just travel with their goat buddy. I love that horses have goat friends. Um, I do too. That just feels so, so right. Um, 
And I love that we can see the drive to create and maintain friendships, even in non-humans. We think about friendships in a very human way, um, but we can see it even in in non-human animals. Yes. Um, I want to, I'm going to hit this off with a quote. This is from an article that I read that was about friendships in animals in um, humans and animals, sorry. And it says, on the proximate level, motivations for friendships in humans and for close social associations in animals are not necessarily based on benefits and are often unconditional. Moreover, humans share with many animals a a similar physiological basis of sociality. And I'm sorry, that was a super mouthful. But basically what's going on here as... um, I read in other sources is that anytime we see biological traits in ourselves that are also shared with other species, especially non-primates, that is something to take notice of. And that serves a larger purpose. And um, one of the other things that we do is called social buffering. And it's a way of describing the protective positive effect of one individual on another and that's also not limited to people, which suggests to us that friendship is important to survival because its evolutionary origins are shared by so many different species. That's super interesting. When we started talking about this episode and sort of first conceptualizing what we wanted it to be, I read a book by Vivek Murthy, who is the former Surgeon General, who might be the Surgeon General again, um, called Together. It's a really good book, as an aside. Um, But looking at what you just shared, there's a quote that stands out to me. I'm going to hit you with a quote now. Are you ready? Oh, yes. Okay. So Murthy is talking about Dr. William Von Hippel, who was a professor of psychology who wrote a book called The Social Leap. As humans developed, evolutionary pressure selected for more cooperation because of the advantages it conferred. And those advantages are things like planning for the future, planning for division of labor, having strength in numbers, having the numbers and security to be able to mate and then sharing responsibility with children, also sharing ideas and innovation and ultimately having the safety and the bandwidth for creativity. That's in line with something called the interdependence hypothesis that I read about, which basically says humans have a unique form of cooperation that stems from mutualistic collaboration. And that happens first on an individual basis, and then it becomes scaled up to a group level where social norms and institutions are developed. So think about something like hunting for food. If you hunt together, the whole group eats, including you. But if you hunt alone, only you eat. So it's kind of about that choice that you make to not pursue your own individual hunting and instead join that group. So the idea here is that social groups and social bonds make us stronger, they make us more secure, they make us healthier, and that being more secure and stronger gives us the leeway to ultimately be altruistic. Yeah. Have you ever heard the term alloparenting? Nope, I haven't. Tell me about it. All right. So this is something else I came across in my research. Basically, alloparenting is shared parenting sometimes even with non-kin. And 
you can see it in studies of some primates, but for some reason, not all primates do this, but we also do see it in birds, some birds. Um, for alloparenting to happen, there has to be a trusted group. So basically, a new mother needs to trust that whatever member of the group is caring for her child at the time, the, so whoever's not her, caring for the child is not going to harm the child because we you know obviously we see that in the animal kingdom they get rid of rivals and stuff um but also they need to trust that they're going to give back the baby and that that's you know for most parents that is a big deal um the other thing that needs to be common is food sharing needs to happen for alloparenting and species that practice alloparenting tend to have healthier, stronger young, and more of those young live on into adulthood. So alloparenting allows for longer childhood, which in turn leads to larger brains. That makes a lot of sense. Sorry, yes. go ahead. That, no, that makes no, a lot sorry. of sense. <laughs> yeah. So basically, as a species, humans are genetically predisposed towards alloparenting, which again is that cooperative practice in raising young. But other species also practice alloparenting. So what makes us unique? And that is kind of where the interdependence hypothesis comes in. It sort of takes it to the next step. First, we're sharing child rearing and maybe a little bit of food. But next, we're collaborating to mutually benefit the group through hunting and foraging and things like that. But you can start to see those stepping stones of cooperation and social ties through the evolutionary biology of mankind. And it kind of sheds some light on how and why people have friendships. We're, we're geared towards that, towards connecting. Fascinating, like really fascinating. Yeah. One of the things that came up in multiple sources during my research was that human girls are more adept at creating bonds than boys. Oh, I read that too. Um, which book was it? Girl Talk by Jacqueline Rose. So one of the things that stood out to me that I think is relevant here um, is that Jacqueline Rose in this book is talking about research by um, by a woman named Luann Brizendine, and I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering her name. Um, but basically, this researcher has concluded that women's brains work differently than men's and that there's an evolutionary need for that to be the case. So here's the quote. Um, and it's a little long. going to hit you with it again. It's going to be a quote heavy episode. Um, According to Brizendine, the female brain has unique aptitudes such as verbal agility, including a large vocabulary, a talent for reading faces and voices for emotions and states of mind. Women also have the ability to diffuse conflict. Also, women have become extremely perceptive at reading emotions in other people's faces. And also, evolutionary psychologists believe this skill at reading other people's emotions and feeling others' pain developed as a way to give early women the ability to sense when danger was near so they could avoid it and protect their children. Oh, did you ever watch the show um, Brain Games on like Nat, Nat Geo or something like that? No, no, I feel like I need to. Tell me about it. Oh, it was so good. I was I was watching it 
a while ago, like before my son was born. So six years ago, at least. Um, But they do an episode about men's brains and women's brains and how different they are. And they, one of the like little tests that they did was they showed people faces and you had to try and remember the face and women were way better at it than men. Like overwhelmingly, it was the women who kept like scoring points and the men were just confused. (laughs) That being said, they packed a trunk full of just nonsense, no goats, just nonsense. And they asked men and women to repack the trunk the way that it was and get all of the nonsense to fit. But men could do that and women overwhelmingly were a little overwhelmed with that. I just used the word overwhelmed twice in the sentence. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> that's interesting though. So a little personal story, or I guess it's just a personal experience. My husband can pack the back of our car like nobody's business. Like when we're going when we're getting ready to go on a road trip, he's got this man. Like he is so on top of it. But if he puts the groceries away, oh, oh I can't like I don't even know where anything is. <laughs> yes. Um So after watching this episode, now anytime I need to pack anything, even if it's the dishwasher, I have to yell at my husband and I'll literally yell, I need your spatial reasoning skills. (laughs) (laughs) Because I, my friends, am a nerd and I say things like that. I was going to say that, that sounds a lot like something a type five would say. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Another thing that we're known for saying is, but did you know? And that is true of me. I say, but did you know all the time? It's a, it's a habit. Of mine. <laughs> let's, let's move on from airing all of my weird habits, please. <laughs> um, I want to reference that same book that you were just talking about, um, Girl Talk. There's a section in that book. Um, and I'm going to go with another quote where she says, There's also biological and evolutionary necessity for girls to get along and maintain harmony in a group. From a young age, girls prioritize sharing and cooperation, and they tend to adapt to the group's vibe. Uh, Yeah, I could believe that. You know, to think that um, those silly Greeks didn't even believe that women were capable of friendship. Yeah, what did they know? Well, I mean, research around friendship is fairly new as it is, like even ignoring the Greeks and and the years and years and years of of looking at friendship more as a philosophical thing than a scientific one. Like research around friendship is really sort of a 20th century innovation. Several of the books that we've read in our research, they reference um, work by Dr. John Cacioppo. So he co-founded the field of social neuroscience, and he became a huge voice in the world of research on social interaction and psychology and physiology. And he wasn't even born until 1951. He was the first to liken loneliness to something like hunger and thirst. He identified it as a necessary warning signal with genetic roots and with biological roots. I didn't believe that. I mean, people aren't the only animals that are affected by loneliness. Um, I read that a monkey kept alone will work for the reward of seeing other monkeys just as a hungry one will work for food. 
So that's interesting. Did you come across any references to oxytocin in the research that you did for this episode? Yes, so many. Okay, me too. So a brief definition just for the benefit of you, our lovely listeners. Um, Oxytocin is a hormone that's released when we bond socially. We typically hear a lot about oxytocin when we talk about infant mother bonding and attachment theory. Um, So hearkening back to the top of the episode, a lot of the studies of oxytocin have been done on voles, so non-primates, non-humans. And there's so much research out there. There's so much research out there. But I think that for our purposes, the most important point here is probably that oxytocin makes our social bonds stronger. Evidence actually suggests that oxytocin promotes bonding within your group. It reduces fear and stress but it also makes you more defensive against those who aren't part of your group. So essentially oxytocin strengthens bonds that are already strong and makes weak bonds weaker. And studies of primates can show us how social bonds can reduce stress. Going back a little bit to alloparenting, in the studies of primate groups who participate in alloparenting, they showed that when a female has um, new young, the presence of her mother, so the grandmother, reduces her levels of stress and can make her feel more secure. But that is also not necessarily true of who we would refer to as the (laughs) (laughs) mother-in-law. Yeah. So if your mother-in-law stresses you out, don't worry, it's not you. It's just biology. Now, I don't know if that means you can tell your partner that, but rest assured, sleep easy. It's not. That, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I love my mother-in-law, so I, I guess maybe I'm lucky. Um, I actually adore my mother-in-law. I feel very lucky. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I have to say, I also do love my mother-in-law. She's an amazing woman. Um, and I'm so glad that of the mother-in-laws that could have been, I have the one that I have very lucky there. But moving on, I feel like this is a good um, point to bring up another article that I read now that we're kind of talking about stress and how, um, how that affects us. Um, There was an article written by a group of researchers at the University of California that talks about how in women, our stress response might not actually be fight or flight, like it's typically considered the human response. Um, But instead, they argue that women exhibit something called tend and befriend. Okay, I'm hooked. Tell me more. Tell me more about it. All right. It all comes down, again, to oxytocin. Studies of affiliate behaviors in animals suggest a mechanism whereby enhanced social activity of females may occur under conditions of stress. In particular, they suggest that oxytocin reduces stress and enhances affiliation. So basically kind of what that's saying is that when women are stressed out, they look to their friends. They enhance their social activity. Um, And the article notes that women weren't really included in any stress response studies in a meaningful way until the 1990s. And actually prior to 1995, only 17% of participants were women. But 
once they did start studying women, that's when they really saw the links to our early social brains. Two things. First, that makes a lot of sense. Second, why weren't women included in these studies? Oh, it was too difficult to study women's bodies since their hormones fluctuate with their monthly cycles. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. So again, we can put a man on the moon, but you know, figuring out how women respond to stress is just scientifically outside of complicated our lady bodies. Indeed. Anyway, here's the interesting thing. When put under stress, women don't exhibit the same response as men. Men are more likely to exhibit that classic fight or flight response. And for a long time, again, because women weren't really included in these studies, it was looked at as the response that humans have. Um, But we're starting to see now that that's not necessarily true. I just like I can't get over the fact that women weren't included. I mean, I guess I guess it makes sense, right? But it it sort of feels like women should have been included if they were going to call fight or flight the stress response. Yeah, yeah, you would think that. But um, now that they've kind of studied it, they they have some reasons why they think women developed this alternative tend and befriend. Um, and basically, what they argue is that. If you think about fight or flight, and then you think about a woman who is nine months pregnant, fight or flight isn't really an option for somebody that is heavily pregnant. I don't know if anybody out there, I, so first of all, before I say that, I know that there are women who continue to exercise and run while they're pregnant. I I know. But there's a difference between running and exercising while you're pregnant for your own health and enjoyment and an intentional thing versus being nine months pregnant and being chased by, you know, some large creature out in the wild. So the other thing that they argue too, is that it's not just during pregnancy, but even when women are nursing, it's very hard I'm assuming I've never tried this again, Um, but it's very difficult to nurse an infant and run away or fight something that is causing you danger. So essentially, instead of running away or trying to fight, they make friends and create bonds. Huh. So women create alliances. Exactly. Do you remember, personal story, do you remember we were, I guess maybe I'm thinking about it today too, because it's really cold outside in Virginia today. There's like ice everywhere. Um, And we used to, when we would like take walks together in college, we always took them at night and always when it was cold because we were weirdos like that. But do you remember the night we were walking and we... We saw, I know exactly we saw something know. on the sidewalk, and I, I yeah, I swear to God, it was a snake. <laughs> it, was a it was, snake. it was a snake. I mean, it I was. like, I don't know if I recognized at the time that it was a snake. I think it was one of those moments of cognitive dissonance where you're like, this isn't real. But do you remember what we did? Like, we didn't run 
And we certainly, we certainly no, didn't try we, to fight the snake. No, we froze. First of all, we fight fighting and flighting was neither of our spots, but we did huddle together, terrified of this snake <laughs> that was just on the sidewalk. It was it was not paying any attention to us. And I think this is also maybe a good time to point out that this snake that we were terrified of was in fact a stick. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that became a bonding moment for us. We tended and befriended. Julie, we're science. We scienced. We are science. Yes. I love (laughs) I'm sorry. I love that. Because we did. That really, it really did become a bonding moment for us because obviously more than a decade later we're still laughing (laughs) about this snake threat that was not real (laughs) but was real in our minds but yeah no if that thing was gonna chase us we were totally screwed we just stood there like oh what are we gonna do it took us like 10 minutes to figure out we could just like walk around the sidewalk yeah yeah really for the win (laughs) oh my gosh I love that. And I love that you brought it up because it definitely, that's exactly what we were doing. We were attending and befriending and not fighting or playing. <laughs> All right. All right. So on that note, I'm going to quote that article that I was just talking about that explains tend and befriend. And they said across the entire life cycle, females are more likely to mobilize social support especially from other females, in times of stress. They seek it out, they receive more support, and they are more satisfied with the support. Girl Talk mentions that too. It talks about how women, or it mentions it sort of in a different way, but it talks about how women have had to form relationships under stress throughout history. Women have traditionally been the ones to lead their families and build new bonds. So I think that kind of response, that tend and befriend response and that, that, need to rather than anyway like that need to just create bonds like that makes total sense to me yeah me too I feel like we learned a lot today what did we learn today yeah we did we talked about a lot of stuff um I think we learned that there is absolutely a biological and evolutionary component to friendship um and we talked about it not just being in humans but also in other animals we talked about how we need social bonds, just like we need water. And, and how we're biologically wired to create those social bonds. Yes. And I think a good place to kind of go from here is maybe in the future we do an episode on health and friendship. I know that kind of came up in a lot I of I agree. Um, let's get on that. I feel like we'll be doing lots more research. I really like research. <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> on that note, Uh, we should probably take a moment to talk about our resources for today's episode. I used a few books, Mothers and Others by Sarah Blafer Hardy, Friendship by Lydia Denworth, Girl Talk by Jacqueline Morose, and When Elephants Weep by Jeffrey Musayef Mason and Susan McCarthy. I also used a few articles, Behavioral Responses to Stress in Females, Tend and Befriend, Not Fight or Flight by Taylor et al., as well as two key steps in the evolution of human cooperation, the interdependence hypothesis by Tomasello et al., human evolution, 
and the Archaeology of the Social Brain by Gowlett, Gamble, and Dunbar. Say that three times fast. And then finally, um, Close Social Associations in Animals and Humans, Functions and Mechanisms of Friendship by Masson, Stark, and I also had a few books and articles that I used for research. Some of them were the same. So I also read Friendship by Lydia Denworth and Girl Talk by Jacqueline Rose. I... um, I read together by Vivek Murthy and found a lot of good stuff. Murphy, 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 and <laughs> found a lot of good stuff in that one. Um, clearly, it hit me so hard. I can, I can even remember his name. Um, anyway, and I read lots of academic articles specifically about oxytocin. So those include, and these titles are so long, guys, but I feel like I got to put them out there. Oxy, yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Oxytocin pathway genes, evolutionary ancient system impacting on human affiliation, sociality. And Psychopathology by Ruth Feldman, Mikhail Monikov, Mayan Pratt, and Richard B. Richard P. Epstein. Parental divorce in childhood is related to lower urinary oxytocin concentrations in adulthood by Maria L. Boccia, Christopher Cook, Leslie Marson, and Court Peterson. And Lost Connections, Oxytocin and the Neural, Physiological, and Behavioral Consequences of Disrupted Relationships by Tapias T. Pohl, Larry J. Young, and Oliver J. Bosch. Oh, gosh, that was a lot. That was a lot to say. <laughs> that was. That was a lot, but that's okay. Um, that's the end of today's episode. We have some good stuff planned for next time. So join us in two weeks when we're going to talk about the power and influence. Oh, I can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm really excited for that one. Yeah, I'm excited for that one too. And I hope our listeners are as well. If you have any thoughts or comments on today's episode, or if there's anything you'd like us to talk about in the future, please reach out to us at info at betterfriendships.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at betterfriendships.com. You can also find us again on Instagram at better underscore friendships and on the web at betterfriendships.com. We would absolutely, love to hear absolutely. From you. Shall we end with our toast? Shall I say it? Shall you say it? There are tall ships and small ships. There are ships that sail the sea, but the best ships are friendships, and may they always be. Yeah.